0: Welcome to Tyranny Today. These days I'm getting a lot of uh, please share emails from my Israeli or Jewish friends. Uh, the attacks and what I would call a rather mixed reaction of the world to Israel's response understandably frightens many Jews. We are now very close to an unhealthy competition over whose innocent victims uh, matter more. 1,400 Israelis, including a 1,000 murdered civilians, or over 7,000 Palestinians, including 2,000 children? Well, I have an answer for you. Even when we do know very well who started it and who carries the responsibility for unleashing this crisis, every single innocent civilian life is of equal value. If not to us, then to their relatives, a loss that cannot be replaced. What is new, however, after two decades of a political coma, is the creeping realization that Israel is not safe, and that the resulting sense of this insecurity is not as widely shared globally as uh, we would have hoped. Or let me rephrase it, maybe. The state of Israel, for now at least, appears safe, but people inside this state can no longer fear secure, which has major implications for its wealth, its growth, prospects, expectations, demographics, and such like. Just ask Ukrainians. This is not the right moment for a recrimination over why what happened happened, because when security is at stake, unity is the only option. But in addition to being frightened and frustrated by the PC correctness of always criticizing the Israeli state, many Jews also appear puzzled by Palestinians' alleged ingratitude for the opportunity that was offered to them by Israel abandoning Gaza back in. 2005, and then allowing for funds to be plowed into Palestine. Funds or promise of more funds in order to make that place livable. In response, Hamas dug 500 kilometers of underground passages, like ants. But it's time to move beyond this, because this economic argument of how much we offer to the Palestinians is an intellectually disappointing form of reductionism we reduce other people's aspirations to being exclusively homo economicus. While this might have been an attractive dogma during the globalization era, early in that period, Huntington's clash of civilizations quite clearly laid out that modernization does not always equal westernization. Quite the contrary. A certain degree of modernization eventually leads to rejection of Western cultural trappings, And this rejection operates in the name of some self-defined local cultural dignity, or collective self-esteem, or self-affirmation. Now, notice that all these terms carry the affix self. It is them, in their first-person plural, that will define their level of satisfaction, not some gambit signed by Tel Aviv and Riyadh and blessed by Joe Biden. It's surprising to me that after all these years, we still don't get it. Or maybe we actually do get it, but it's more convenient to fall back on two-dimensional charts with the ubiquitous Ceteris paribus." And I'm saying this as an economist and someone who works every day in financial markets. It is reductionism, necessary to figure out how to make money, but clearly insufficient to figure out how to stay safe. Two different problems. This allegedly economic driver of peace has failed us not only in Gaza, but also in Russia and in China. Recall that the economic carrot has not driven the Iranian mullahs away from their destructive designs and their nuclear ambitions. Russia, too, decided to risk its lucrative and, frankly, irreplaceable European energy market in the name of something very different and very sanguinary. And China became richer within the global system of American-slash-Western primacy only to subvert the system from the inside, with something like 14 different border conflicts around its periphery. So why are we kidding ourselves that just by offering Palestinians a good business deal, the problem of relative legitimacy will be resolved? For as long as I hear this nonsense from economists, I just dismiss it. But when I hear it, this reductionism repeated in other quarters, I despair. Let's face it. At a collective level, human aspirations are at least trinary. Uh, what I'm going to do next is basically to melt Maslow's pyramid to something like an eroded ziggurat. So the first aspiration is admittedly economic, and human greed means that it's never fully satisfied. There will always be another rabbit to chase, and we can never have enough. But this drive is not necessarily overarching. The need for security definitely trumps greed because of the primeval role that that emotion of fear plays in our nervous and hormonal system, when amygdala sends the first alarm signal and our hypothalamus chooses whether to fight, to flee, or to freeze stimulating our autonomous nervous system accordingly. So these are two decisions. First, should I fear this snake? And second, should I hack it into pieces, run away, or just pretend that I'm not there? And these decisions are not rational, because the rational stuff happens in the prefrontal cortex of our brains, rather than in amygdala or hypothalamus. But it doesn't matter that we like the rational stuff, because we like being human, the irrational Reptile brain routinely overrides the prefrontal cortex calculation of economic opportunity that we would so much love Palestinians to guide themselves with. Why does security override greed? Well, because of what the Israeli scientists, Konman and Tversky, discovered in their prospect theory, that losses are much more painful than equivalent gains are satisfactory. In fact, two and a half times more painful as they calculated from different experiments. So. For example, if you have a modest house, you may aspire to own a better one. Let's say your current house is worth uh, half a million dollars, and the new one you aspire to is worth a million. But if the odds are 50-50 that with the impending change, you risk not only winning a million-dollar house, but you also risk at the same time possibly losing everything, that is, from half a million to zero. So will you take the bet and risk becoming homeless? Of course not. You will stay put and withdraw from the game. Your reptilian amygdala makes you rational, two and a half times waiting, at the very least. But then you say, well, the Palestinians, unlike the Israelis, are actually safe in their territory. Under normal circumstances, we don't terrorize them with raids on paragliders, and we do not typically behead their children with machetes. So their option is having a better house or having what they have, not lose it. But that underestimates the third drive that any collectivity holds dearly, the search for autonomy, for independence for decisional sovereignty. 19th-century imperialists called this drive nationalism because many self-defined linguistic or religious communities craved to have a sovereign unit that they would inhabit, a homeland in which they would rule themselves rather than just look up to a bearded ruler and say Vienna. Austria-Hungary tried to solve this issue by offering ever-larger autonomy and for a while it worked. My ancestors were thus bilingual German speakers and indeed They had Kaiser Franz Josef's portrait at home. But in the end, the national aspirations of Serbs, Croats, Slovenes, Slovaks, Ukrainians, Poles, Hungarians, Romanians, Germans, Czechs, Jews, Italians and several other nationalities could not be addressed by some limited autonomy plus economic growth. Full independence only. And all of these nations today have their own state. If we know this, then why are we kidding ourselves? kidding ourselves that somehow, having a strong Israeli state, we can simply ignore this basic fact of life, that any self-defined community, defined often by contrast of their lifestyle and its traditions with its immediate neighbors, that is driven not by one, however lucrative, modus cogitandi, but by three motives, security, autonomy, and prosperity. A balance will have to be struck between these three drivers and beyond a certain threshold of prosperity both when it is too little of this and paradoxically when there is too much of it the autonomy issue will rear its head now is this head ugly well that depends on the ear of the beholder but from what we hear about hamas it's ugly indeed every national grand strategy has to address these three facets and israel is no different But I do worry about Israel's security if the government does not play it right. Because of its geography, the country has limited strategic depth. It may even have limited strategic time if the Muslim street is convulsed once a generation in deep hatred of Israel and America. And I'd add to it a limited strategic breadth as Israel's number one ally, America, is seeing its own space in the global south undermined by Chinese and Russian propaganda. Just last week, Russian diplomats reached out to both Hamas and Tehran. In fact, Moscow and Beijing would happily let Israel be wiped off the map if that's the small, for them, cost of undermining America's position. And so, paradoxically, America's unwavering and essential support may actually become a longer-term liability for Israel's security, hence Washington's hectic, dual-track approach, slowing down Israel's risky infantry operation and deterring Iran. But America's means are limited. Here, unfortunately, Israel has contributed to these limits by selling advanced military technology to China over America's objections, including drones, submarines and aircraft. China would have never developed its J-10 Chengdu Vigorous Dragon advanced fighter jet without help from Israel aircraft Industries LAVI fighter, an unfinished product that US-Israeli partnership once abandoned. China would also have had great trouble developing PL-8, missile which originated from the Israeli Python 3 AAM. China would have had massive problems developing its radar destroyer without first acquiring Israeli UAV Harpy loitering munition missile. Now Beijing can easily paralyze US and Taiwanese raiders. And China may have had real trouble developing tank thermal sheet technology were it not for Israeli help. Not just China. A year after Russia's invasion of Georgia, Israel sold to Russia advanced military drones, a novelty in Moscow's arsenal at that time. Maybe strengthening America's enemies for a handful of dollars more was not such a good idea for Israel's long-term survival? Therefore, when a guy on our street is selling blue badges asking to stand with Israel, I do, but I also ask, will you stand with me? And I have some doubts here. Quite recently, Israel's high-end weapon sales to Azerbaijan helped Baku conduct the largest ethnic cleansing since the Yugoslav wars. Using Israeli and Turkish weapons, Azerbaijan kicked out 120,000 Armenians from their ancestral land just a month ago. Israel was thus helping, indirectly, in ethnic cleansing, probably under some pretense that the Azeris could maybe one day become helpful in case of a conflict with Tehran. But it's a tenuous supposition at best. As a result, Tel Aviv supported Azerbaijan, an ambivalent dictatorship with a revisionist policy seeking to upset the status quo in the region. Did anyone in Israel blink? Or maybe didn't? It's a question of principle, after all. Why support revisionist states, such as Turkey, Azerbaijan, Serbia, Hungary, or Russia? Because it's not my tribe, so I don't care? Revisionism is about, inter alia, changing borders. And that's precisely what all of these states are striving to do. If we do not stand up to them out of principle, then maybe we shouldn't be so surprised when a terrorist gang violates our borders and much of the world, shamefully, yawns. Tragically, this realization brings us back to the claim we often make about the universal value of the lessons of the Holocaust. If we just reduce this horrifying chapter in history to a my-tribe-your-tribe equation, then much of its moral value evaporates. So it might have been in Israel's long-term interest to confront Putin over Ukraine rather than hiding in the shadows. Arabs won't care, but the European street just might. It's before our security is undermined that we need to make friends, rather than being surprised how few of them we have when the house is already burning. Let's take a good care of those we still have. But let's stop looking for them in the Kremlin or in jong High because those cavernous corridors are so void of friendly faces that even silence is scolding at you. Chancellor Olaf Scholz, ducking on the tarmac of Tel Aviv Airport. Twenty months since it turned out how defenseless Germany was, the moment was symbolic, except that Fortress Europe is even more defenseless now, with two veto-wielding Trojan horses prancing happily. Last week, Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban, fresh from his pilgrimage to Beijing, and his newly elected Slovak counterpart, Robert Fico spoke out against continued military aid to Ukraine. Now, this aid package from EU requires unanimity. It is true that EU's military support to Ukraine is delivered bilaterally, but it can be refunded by Brussels via a managed fund financed by member states, and it is this mechanism that requires unanimous support to top it up. The last increase to that fund took place in January, and subsequent attempts to top it up have been blocked by Hungary's veto. And now there are two countries to block it, Hungary and Slovakia. These two countries for centuries used to be one. In fact, for a long period, Slovakia was part of Hungarian history, not Czech history, as we commonly think. So Slovaks, for example, never felt any allegiance to to the great Czech kings, such as Karl IV both Hungary and Slovakia also had fascist governments in the 20th century, and both sent their Jewish citizens to German death camps in General Toshoft. If you go to Auschwitz Museum, you'll see that Hungarian Jews were the second largest national group of Jews annihilated in that camp. And now, both of those former component parts of Austria-Hungary empire are becoming a problem for the world peace. Devoid of any concrete arguments, Mr. Orban is serving Putin by trying to block Sweden's accession to NATO – he's not alone, but let's say without any sympathy for him – that Erdogan at least had some concrete reservations, such as Sweden's moronic legislation that allows public offence to people's religious sensitivities. Orban met with the indicted international criminal Putin in Beijing, and what he obtained for representing Moscow's interests in Europe is still unclear. Certainly any backing from Bratislava will make the fat man from Budapest feel less lonely, especially now that his allies in Warsaw were swept under the carpet by a huge turnout in Polish elections. And good riddance to these clowns in Warsaw, by the way. Apropos Budapest, Paul Krivacek in his wonderful and highly recommended Yiddish civilization reminds us how anti-Semites used to call the Hungarian capital Yudapest. But Ukraine doesn't have only a European veto problem. Its second headache could be Mike Johnson, apparently a Trump's man, elected as House Speaker with zero experience. This little-known figure is not reputed for consensus-building, but rather for strong views on things such as uh, the budget deficit, which is always a huge Republican issue, unless, of course, there is a Republican administration in the White House. Although his first pronouncements were pro-institutional, and he already managed to enrage the extreme right-wing clowns, there's still a risk that the Israel-Ukraine-Taiwan-Mexican border funding package may take even longer to be pushed through. Oh, the Mexican border, you wonder? Yeah, this is no longer just a Republican issue either. Over and above the mismanaged immigration policy, there is uh, now the crisis of fentanyl flooding the streets of America and killing 74,000 people every year. The active ingredients for this deadly drug cocktail are transshipped shipped via Mexico from China. And Xi Jinping has shown zero interest in tackling that issue, despite U.S. exhortations. Maybe he conflates 19th century Britain with 21st century America and views this reverse opium war as a form of retribution? Clearly, it will be tough for us to solve this issue at the border checkpoint. When a Slovakia or a Marjorie Taylor Greene gain a veto power over global security, I'm reminded of how tragically this could end. If you ever travel around Lithuania, you will inevitably visit the amazing medieval castle of Trakai. It's well-preserved, romantically personal-like. Only the slightly higher rays of autumnal sunlight will convince you that you are not in Scotland. Here in the 17th century, Vladislav wiktorin a member of a Polish-Lithuanian nobility and a dignitary of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, lorded over his picturesque estate. At that time, Poland-Lithuania was a parliamentary monarchy and Szyczyński was among the deputies of the Trakai Voivodeship nobility to the same, that is, the parliament of the polish lithuanian Commonwealth. The parliament session of uh, 1652 took place during the bloody Chmelnicki uprising in Ukraine. Szyczyński is credited with using the liberum veto for the first time in Polish history during that parliamentary session, which blocked the legislation. 150 years later... After the partitions of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, writers searched for causes of the collapse of this once powerful state, and they blamed Liberum veto for creating anarchy and disorder that led to the downfall of that state. Unless the European Union solves the issue of small country veto, including Hungary and Slovakia, and unless the GOP solves the problem of incendiary extremist veto over the US administration's strategic initiatives, then we, in the West, will become marginalized by foreign interests, whether Russian or Chinese. A veto, which should be a tool to maintain democracy, will instead become the sharpest tool in the sabotage toolkit of outside powers. We really can't rebuild much when confronted with nihilistic veto to everything. Last week I met with the management of the largest rare earths company in the Western world. Rare earths are necessary for production of permanent magnets that are found in energy transition technologies, but also in defense applications. The company I met with is Australian, and its CEO was visiting the US to join the Australian Prime Minister for a state dinner with President Joe Biden at the White House. China, which controls most of rare earths mining, refining and separation, has been actively trying to torpedo any development of rare earths business in the West. One way to do this, according to this company's management, is by spreading propaganda about how polluting the rare earths mining is. The truth is that it can be polluting indeed, but it doesn't have to be, and modern mining has developed efficient ways to deal with water, solid waste, effluent, reagent, dust, and noise management. And how is it that anti-mining propaganda is spreading through leftist NGOs in this country? Google security caught the thread that was initiated online by bots from Dragon Bridge. Yes, Dragon Bridge. I don't need to tell you from which country it originated. Um, But that's what Beijing does, blocking our industrial development by leveraging useful idiots who have zero technical knowledge of mineral extraction or processing. So when Marjorie Major Green, Robert Fizzo, Victor Orban, or maybe Mike Johnson plank their derriere in the classic Mr. Niet or maybe Mrs. Niet fashion, you should know who directs them, even if they themselves may not realize it. This unhealthy focus on what I don't want, instead of building something that we do want, shatters all the three pillars of our collective desires. Prosperity, autonomy, and security. There is no prosperity because Niet, NIMBY, and spoofed inertia never generate any new value. There is no autonomy because a single veto can paralyze the entire system. And there is no security either because we can't build anything that would make us more secure. The gates were open for Hamas, after many months' long internal strife among Israelis had weakened the state. Internal Armenian strife cost them Nagorno-Karabakh, and the internal strife that Trumpists are preparing for this country may weaken us so much that we won't just lose Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, but we let the world be run by those who reject our values and the concept of freedom as we know it. For as long as they have the veto, Russia, China, their proxies in Iran, North Korea, or beyond, have a real chance to achieve their objectives. Our parochial, tribal thinking is only helping them in this endeavor. If you just focus too narrowly on your in-group's immediate gain, the cost may be huge. The GOP can say that they care about Hezbollah because they need 35 million potential Christian Zanis voters, and the GOP will try to stem fentanyl by focusing on coyotes. But they are also, since at least 2016, too deeply infiltrated by Russian propaganda to care about Ukraine. And this is happening at a dangerous juncture in this war. We have just seen the announcement of Russia's military budget for 2024, and it's sobering. Russia is planning to spend $130 billion on defense, or should I say, offense, throughout the next year. This is not only a hopping 7.5% of Russia's GDP. This is twice the amount that America is putting on the table the table that Mike Johnson's gavel may yet crush. Ukrainians are concerned that after the so-called elections in Russia next March, Moscow will announce general mobilization, which is likely. Putin has clearly decided to survive the current stage of the attrition war until his orange buddy re-enters the White House. The polls in this country alarmingly are showing that this is precisely where Americans are heading. Which is astounding, because the often-cited rationale seems to point to uncertain economy under Biden. Except that the economy grew 4.9% in the third quarter, the best result since 2021. There is hardly an unemployment, but the administration gets no credit for this. So are Americans simply concerned about the recent pickup in the volatility of the U.S. treasury market? Even Americans are not pure homo economicus. Stupid. To this attrition effect, Russian economy is now on a war footing. They churn out 250 new tanks per year, and are in the process of refurbishing a 1,000 of older models. That's 1,250 tanks, more than what they lost last year. By comparison, Ukraine only got 14 Challengers 2 from the UK, 31 Abrams Mi-1 tanks from US, 31 Leopards 2A, and they are waiting for 54 similar Leopards 2 from Denmark and the Netherlands. It also had 300 older Soviet tanks from Poland, but I don't know how many of these are still function. Ukrainians are also running out of drones with good night vision, which is critical at a time when nights are getting longer and days are shorter. Russians do not suffer from such constraints, and it is unclear if China's exports control on germanium, a mineral critical for infrared lighting, apply to Russia. Russia is also exploiting the shift in the Western attention to the Middle East. It is preparing to break the pact that prohibits nuclear tests. It has significantly increased construction at a remote arctic island location in Nova Zemlya, where Soviet nuclear tests were once conducted. It is intensifying hybrid operations in the Baltic, where somewhat unmysteriously a gas pipeline between Finland and Estonia was damaged, while communication cables between Estonia and Finland and between Estonia and Sweden were also cut and the Russian army is trying to break through on two segments of the Ukrainian front line, in Advivka, where untold numbers of Russian forces have died recently, and near Kupiansk, so close to Kharkiv. What is deeply worrisome about Russia's staying power in this war comes courtesy satellite images obtained from Kasan, the only Russian city that borders on North Korea. Trains from Kasan heading west appear fully loaded, and images from the nearby Songbon port in North Korea showed that containers after containers are loaded with something onto ships that, without transponders, sail through the Arctic route towards Russia's European zone. One can say, well, these are large volumes of low-quality material. But, as I said here before, quantity matters in the war of attrition. By some estimates, Russia got 2.5 million rounds from North Korea. By comparison, the EU pledged 1 million rounds of 155mm ammunition for the calendar 2023, but only 30% of this number have been shipped thus far, and America's uh, promise to boost the 155mm inventory in Ukraine had to be redirected to Israel. You can argue that it doesn't really matter all that much because Russia has no access to high-end technology. Well, it does. Russians have set up fake mailbox companies in Turkey, and Central Asia, or even in Hong Kong, which allows them to import Western components that are supposedly destined for other markets, but then they end up in Russian weapons. This is a kind of a cat-and-mouse game that worries Western countries because in order to close this loop, intelligence services have to analyze in detail the Russian rockets that fall onto Ukraine and then investigate how certain components got there. This inevitably takes time, so we're always behind the curve with this. The country that is most panicky about these developments is, of course, South Korea. What exactly is North Korea getting from Russia in exchange for all this ammunition destined to murder Ukrainians? Is it satellite technology, real-time intelligence, submarine technology, missile technology, guidance equipment? Whatever it is, Russia is doing it in clear violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Why? Because it can, and it is laughing into our face. Pyongyang is almost certainly developing submarine-launched ballistic missiles in order to have a second-strike nuclear capability. Now, how scary is that? And let's not forget that a kinetic war means technological adaptation in real time. Since February 22, Russians have learned a hell of a lot about drones, landmines, high-intensity ammo use, signal intelligence, and such like. Sharing that know-how with South Korea's number one nemesis is high value. I encountered some optimistic commentary that this Moscow-Beijing-Pyongyang triad is not a happy one because triads, like all threesomes, may be exciting in the short term but are not very successful in the longer term. But strategic initiative in the short term matters just as much. Too much unites these regimes in their anti-Western, anti-American, anti-Japanese, anti-Taiwanese and anti-Israeli vendetta to let any threesome wrinkles show in the open. In a recent piece, Jake Sullivan has been trying to de-emphasize our rivalry with Beijing. Uh, This verbal strategy hopefully makes us gain some extra time, but it's undeniable that China is plotting a bigger game here. During the recent Belt and Road event in Beijing, only one head of state was treated with the honors of the state visit. And it wasn't Putin, despite Russia's insistence to treat him as a guest of honor, which he was. So who was giving a state visit treatment? Joko Widodo the ruler of Indonesia, or as they call him, Jokowi. This may help us understand why Israel got such a cold shoulder from Beijing after Hamas's attacks. Beijing has been trying to woo the world's largest Muslim nation into the bricks, which hasn't quite worked out just yet. And the history between the two countries is rather complicated. For much of the Cold War, Indonesia was ruled by Sukarno, a mercurial politician whose flowery speeches about the country's unique route to socialism are often brushed off as rather quirky. Sukarno styled himself as a co-leader of the non-aligned movement, alongside such luminaries as Tito of Yugoslavia, Nasser of Egypt, Nehru of India, and Krumah of Ghana. And Indonesia is also home to a large Chinese diaspora, what the Chinese call Hua Chao, overseas Chinese. Many of the Southeast Asian Chao from Malaysia through Thailand to Indonesia, lived lives which were poorly assimilated into the local fabric, and they could sometimes be instrumentalized by the rulers in Beijing. In 1949, these rulers became communists. Many Hua Chao decided to support the mainland communists. Now, the reasons for this were manifold. First, the very fact that Mao Zedong took power in Beijing was a sign that his opponents had lost the Mandate of Heaven, a concept developed by Menzi, a Confucian scholar from the 3rd century BC. This concept of the Mandate of Heaven has always served as a convenient crutch to understand the frequent dynastic shifts in China's history. If the emperor stays in power, well, that means that he has the Mandate of Heaven. If he is deposed, well, it means he has lost it. Simple. So if someone decamps from the capital to Taiwan, well, too bad. Many Chao also supported Maoism out of their ideological leanings, And due to their proud Chinese identity, amidst what they commonly viewed as lesser cultures of the seafaring locals. This association between the Chinese ethnicity and local communism led to a long and tragic civil war in Malaya that, surprisingly for guerrilla war, was actually won by a colonial power. Britain, that is. In Indonesia, Sukarno tried to maneuver around these challenges and as his policies became more disjointed and economically cavalier, he got ever closer to Beijing, when he was deposed in a coup d'état by Swart, many of his ministers were caught stranded in Beijing, which is where they stayed for years after that. Now China is trying to woo Indonesia with a full package of policies aimed at tying ASEAN closer to Beijing's dominance. Although China exercises the right to veto in ASEAN, courtesy is vassals in Phnom Penh and Vietnam, similarly to what Moscow can achieve in Europe with Budapest and now Bratislava. The success of China's grand project in Southeast Asia will require a little more than just a veto. It needs a positive narrative, and Beijing won't be able to pull it off without Muslim Indonesia. Beijing is applying four principles in its approach to Southeast Asia. It sounds all very lofty and quite indigestible, but there is a method in this jumble. First, they promote inclusiveness based on joint consultation and connecting local economic dynamics with Beijing's strategy. Secondly. China seeks to leverage its Global Development Initiative, Quanqiu from 2021, and also with a push for a free trade agreement next year. Thirdly, China demands that all the issues in the region, including the disputes in the South China Sea, are solved on a bilateral basis without interference of outside powers, following on its GSI, Global Security Initiative, Quanqiu Changyi. And fourth, it stresses Asian values, as per Global Civilization Initiative, that conveniently conflates the current regimes and power with rich cultural traditions. This GCI, Chuan Chou Wen Ming Chong Yi, has so far found little traction, but it harks back to the great cultural debate before the Asian crisis in the 1990s. Since I worked in Asia at that time, I recall that much of that debate was cloaked in somewhat less acerbic anti Westernism. The other thing I recall fondly was Lee Kuan Yew's or Mohammed Mahathir's open frustration that Japan didn't participate in Western bashing. Why didn't it? Because unlike those former colonies, Japan never felt particularly inferior to the West and didn't need to build a post-colonial narrative that Beijing is now dusting off. In my view, Jakarta is quite sensitive to China's siren songs. Indonesia's gambit to entice foreign investment downstream from its mining operations has paid off with massive capex commitments in recent years, except that most of those commitments have been made by mainland Chinese companies, for example, by stainless steel producers in need of local nickel. The large Chinese investment has also taken toll on local environment, not least in Sulawesi, where much of this nickel can be found. And so, the world's fourth largest country may sway in Beijing's direction. Jakarta's reaction to AUKUS announcement between Australia, the UK and the US was surprisingly strident. The country's minister stated that no Australian submarines would be allowed to transit through Indonesia's straits. And given that the country only has islands and straits, this would mean that any underwater assets that Australia may deploy, once US Congress wakes up to the necessity of sharing our technology, would be blocked. I've sailed in the past on an Indonesian archipelago, and the waters between many islands are so shallow that on a sunny day you can often see the shadow of your sampan at the bottom of the sea. It would therefore be quite easy to detect any submarine transiting through the area. It's like the opposite of Norwegian fjords, some of which are 4,000 feet deep and thus really good for submarines to remain undetected. And why is Indonesia so shallow? Because much of Indonesia was separated into its more than 18,000 islands only when the sea level increased during the Holocene sea level rise some 8,000 years ago. If you look at such maps, you'll find that Indonesia was back then simply a large Asian peninsula. So much for Chinese claims to the sea that never was. If you think that next year's elections in Indonesia will somehow change the direction of the political winds, well, think again. Indonesia's president, Joko Widodo, has announced that his eldest son, the 36-year-old Gibran Rakabuming Raka, has been picked as the running mate of the defense minister, Prabowo Subyanto, who will stand in the presidential election next year. The Constitutional Court had to lower the age limit to allow the president's son to run. And who presided over the decision of the court? Chief Justice Anwar Usman, the president's brother-in-law. This will allow Jokowi to pull the strings behind the scenes for a long time to come. The world's third-largest democracy is also its youngest, only 25 years old this year. And who knows, it may be slowly, prematurely dying. Am I too alarmist? Maybe. But it's not only Gibran or Anwar. Chokovi's younger son, 28-year-old Kesan Pangarep, the popular social media personality, became the chief of Indonesia Solidarity Party, which caters specifically to younger voters. And the president's son-in-law, Bobby Nasution, was voted in as the mayor of Medan in North Sumatra. Then there is family connection to the previous dictatorship, because Prabowo Subianto, the presidential candidate, is the former son-in-law of none other than Suarto, the former strongman. The nature of the country's internal system matters for international relations. While we were not watching during COVID, anti-American propaganda in Indonesia intensified, starting with the Chinese narratives about America being at the origin of the pandemic. Then, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the Chinese spread the narrative that it was Ukraine that started the war. Ukraine and NATO, of course. Just like in China, Putin is popular in Indonesia because he stands up to America, America the bully. Add to this the recurrent propaganda about Muslims allegedly being mistreated in America, and voila. So Israel-Hamas conflict is captured in Indonesia with a very strong, very fertile, and perfectly buttered confirmation bias. Not a pretty picture. I can't wait for those future recriminations over who has lost Indonesia. Thank you for listening. Let's meet again next week.